sonrisa que ha pasado por su casa, que ha venido porque quiere ser feliz. Good afternoon. Welcome to Tom's World Language Cafe coming to you live from Fishers, Indiana. Uh, it's about 4.30 in the afternoon. It's a beautiful December afternoon. Uh, we're getting closer to uh, Christmas, and we welcome you to Tom's World Language Cafe, uh, where today we have a very special guest, uh, Tony Lagrato. And Tony uh, comes to us from Lawrence Central High School in Indianapolis, Indiana. And he's a very distinguished teacher of Spanish. And he's going to be talking to us about uh, all things teaching, uh, all kinds of neat ideas. And we hope that you'll stay tuned for the entire broadcast. Uh, we also would like to thank the University of Colorado and Colorado Springs for sponsoring this program, and especially to thank uh, Kyle, the station manager, and also the faculty uh, at the University of Colorado and Colorado Springs, and the students as well, and their wonderful shows that they have on the radio station, radioucs.edu. Uh, and today, we also would like to uh, remember... Um, uh, she's not with us any longer, Marge Mystery, who helped found the radio stations at the University of Colorado and Colorado Springs. Okay, Tony, how are you? Hey, Tomas, how have you been? I'm just fine. I hear you're planning a trip to Cuba very soon, huh? Uh, we are going to Havana, Cuba in June uh, with one, one of our Aventura Cultural uh, programs in Havana, Cuba, which uh, we're very excited about. Uh, we think it's going to be one of the neatest uh, probably pre-teacher programs and maybe in the history, we hope, and mm -hmm. uh, just a wonderful program. Um, can you tell the listeners, Tony, a little bit about uh, yourself and where you uh, are from and maybe your your uh, relatives, where they came from, and uh, also about your wife, Luisa? Yes, Tomas. Uh, I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm 56 years of age. However, uh, that may not sound all too interesting, but my dad was born in Minturno, Italy. So oh, he was about seven years old, uh, right before World War II. And uh, his family saw that things were getting going from bad to worse in the old country, as they talked, they referred to it. So they headed uh, to the port of Minturno, a port called Gaeta. And it's in the south of Italy, and they got on board, uh, his mother and his older brother and uh, his sister. And the four of them set sail in, oh, 1937 or 1938. And it was a long journey, and of course it was a difficult journey. It was certainly nothing luxurious, uh, but they came across the, the Atlantic and landed where else but in Ellis Island. At least that's what we're led to believe. Now, we do have documents that suggest that uh, that's, that was the point of entry into the U.S., Ellis Island. But then I hear other things that Ellis Island was closed in 1927. So there must have been some opening and closing of the island, you know. So but anyway. And then, then uh, they ended up in Indianapolis, I assume, right? Well, they ended up in New York, and then they migrated to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I guess they were told... Uh, probably via Western Union, uh, that there was work to be had in, in some place called Indianapolis, right? That's what they call it, Indianapolis. But anyway, uh, yes, and they wound up here 
in Indianapolis, Indiana, in the late 30s. Yeah. And obviously you speak Italian, correct? Yeah, I speak a dialect. You know, Italian is a very dialectical language. You can go from the north to the south, to the east to the west. And if you're not speaking standard, which is standard Roman or Florentine Italian, you're probably going to rely on what's known as dialect. And a person from Milan and a person from Naples, when they speak dialect, have no idea what they're saying to each other. So they have to rely on a common language, which is Roman Italian, and that enables them to communicate. But you know, Italy was only unified, oh, in the late uh, 19th century, 1860, along with uh, around the same time Germany was. And of course, you know, because the country it was so fragmented, it really wasn't a country. It was known sometimes as a geographical expression. And because the geographical expression was so fragmented, it was difficult to, to get a common language. But of course, radio and TV, and now with the internet, and computers, of course, uh, the culture and the language are homogenizing, so to speak, so it's much easier. But there are still people that speak dialect, and uh, the uh, person speaks one dialect, uh, speaking with another person, they understand each other. They have to go into Rome. So could you say a couple sentences in Italian for the listeners? Uh, io posso parlare in dialetto italiano, io capisco abbastanza bene l'italiano familiare. Io parlo in dialetto... Uh, ho studiato l'italiano all'università, uh, ma quando ero ragazzino non potevo leggere, potevo parlare il dialetto, ma quando sono andato all'università ho imparato a leggere. And that certainly does not mean that it's cloudy outside, right? <laughs> it does not mean it's cloudy outside. Okay. It's cloudy in my head. <laughs> that sounded very good. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, lovely. Uh, now, tell us a little bit, listeners, about your wife, Luisa. Now, you teach Spanish uh, in Lawrence Central, at Lawrence Central High School, and Luisa also is a Spanish teacher, right? Yes, she is. She is in the neighboring school district. She's in Washington Township. And her special uh, calling, I guess, is to teach 6th, uh, 7th, and 8th grade Spanish. And uh, whereas I'm more oriented towards the 16, 17, 18 year olds on up, you know. <laughs> so. Yes. Now, um, so did you meet Luisa at, uh, in, at the university when you were studying? Yes, as a matter of fact, I met Luisa in August of 1979. I was working as, I guess, uh, a student advisor, and I was helping with the freshmen as they were beginning to enroll. Luisa's two years younger than I. So as I was uh, wandering around, I guess, the Indiana Memorial Union where students were choosing classes, I was, uh, I guess, assisting the incoming freshmen, and there was Luisa. And we hit up a conversation. She was also interested in Spanish. And I knew I was a Spanish major. I was a junior uh, when she was a freshman. And lo and behold, I went back to my residence, which was a, called the Spanish house, where we were expected to speak Spanish 24-7. And who shows up but Luisa? Luisa Nash. She also was a resident as a freshman in La Casa Española. So there you go. I, I think it was probably fated to be so. That we okay, <laughs> a very nice story. Uh, and, of course, this was at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, correct? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, and I'm going to ask you another interesting question for the listeners to, to know this. 
if I am correct on this, and Tony is going to correct me if I'm not, or tell me I am correct, Tony has holds two master's degrees, and I think one of them is in the master's in the teaching of Spanish, something to that effect. Yes. And, then, uh, mm -hmm. and the other degree is a master's in Spanish literature. Yes. Is that correct? That is correct. And you got you you got your first degree at Indiana University in, in Spanish, and then the second degree was at Northern Iowa University, correct? Yes, yes, that's true. And uh, uh, what prompted you to go back and get a degree in Spanish literature? Well, I always, when I was an undergraduate, of course, undergraduates take courses in grammar and language and conversation and literature and linguistics, the whole basket, so to speak. But, you know, uh, I had three or four very, very fine professors who were not only scholars, but they were excellent teachers. I think of Miguel and Givenos, Russell's, all these uh, good gentlemen are now deceased, unfortunately. But I think of Russell Salmon, Miguel and Givenos, Jose Miguel Oviedo. I think Joe Recapito is still living. I think Dan Quilter. Dan Quilter is deceased, yes. These were, uh, not only were they scholars, but they were quite uh, good as teachers, and they sort of lit a fire. Not only did I enjoy speaking Spanish and using the Spanish to communicate, but I also liked to look into the literature as a window towards the culture and the history. And so I, I knew that uh, financially it wasn't very likely that I would be able to give up my job and my house and my mortgage payment and my car payment. So there was a program in the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls that offered a, a summer program in, uh, in Spanish. Now, it wasn't just literature. I mean, literature was definitely the emphasis, but there was also some linguistics and there was some uh, conversation and translation. So uh, at the end of, um, I guess, five years, I was able to accomplish summers only, of the, the, the standard MA, as they call it, in, in Spanish. And it was a very good degree, and I'm very, very proud that I have it. Unfortunately, the program was no longer in existence. I don't know why. They were losing students, or it was too difficult for today. I don't know what happened. It was a lot of work. <laughs> so did, um, now, you teach at Lawrence Central High School. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about Lawrence Central High School and what classes you t teach at the, the high school? Uh, presently, let's see, we offer six levels of Spanish, Spanish 1 through 6. Currently, I'm uh, teaching Spanish 2, Spanish 4, Spanish 5, and Spanish 6. Now, uh, folded into that, we also offer advanced placement Spanish, international baccalaureate Spanish, and new as of last year, uh, a course that's offered through IU in Bloomington, ACP, which stands for the Advanced College Project, where students uh, can actually gain uh, six hours of college credit in Spanish, and some students do it in, in other subjects as well. I can't remember exactly which. So we have uh, a little bit of everything. We have a traditional Spanish four or five students, but in with them, we have international baccalaureate, advanced placement in advanced college. So we have definitely a, a multi multi-facet program here at Lawrence Central. Now, is there Spanish in the middle school and elementary schools? Or? Yes, as a matter of fact, now Lawrence Township is one of the few public schools that I know, public school systems that I know of, that have an immersion program. They have a kindergarten through grade 12 immersion program where I believe in the early grades children take 
uh, three quarters of their school day in Spanish and a quarter in English. And then I think by the time they reach eighth or ninth grade, it's about 50-50, 50% Spanish, 50% English. But it's a very fine program. We've had a lot of really uh, wonderful students uh, graduate from the program all 12 years who are quite proficient in the language, and they can go out and they have a second skill, a second uh, outlook on life because of the fact that they were educated in an American school, in a Hoosier school, but in, a, in Spanish. So they definitely have a, a very unique way of looking at the world and something unique to offer the world as well. Yes, and so uh, Lawrence certainly can be proud of their language program, right? It's quite yes, advanced. Yes. Very, very good. Um, and um, then this um, foreign language study, for example, uh, why do you think people, students, adults, should study a world language? Uh, why, why is it important to know another language and, and the culture of the, of the people? Well, uh, perhaps I'm biased because I was raised in a bilingual and bicultural family, and I really didn't uh, appreciate my roots uh, until I got to a public comprehensive high school and took a Spanish class. And I thought, wow, there are so many connections between Spanish and Italian, both being Romance languages derived from the Latin, that it was really quite an eye-opener. Uh, studying a foreign language, uh, Spanish, and I've studied several now, but uh, studying Spanish and uh, being able to communicate in Spanish definitely allowed me to get to know myself and the world a whole lot better. Now, I know that sounds like pie in the sky, but until you've been there, it's difficult to express what a privilege and what a pleasure it is to be able to communicate uh, in another language or several other languages and to see the world in a much different way. Um, studies have shown that students who speak two languages essentially are two people. Or if you speak three languages, you're three people. I mean, you can communicate with the world in a way that others, uh, monolingual students, cannot. And I also believe that uh, a lot of uh, research has indicated that students who can speak a second or third language tend to outperform their monolingual peers on standardized tests. They tend to think more creatively. They tend to have better math skills. They tend to have better reading skills. Uh, just... Uh, exposure to another language is definitely a win-win situation for everybody involved. Well said. That was beautifully said. I totally agree with everything you said, and you covered it beautifully. Uh, that, that was well, well said. Um, what about the teaching profession today? If you had to give advice to uh, young people, young teachers, or student teachers before they start, what, what advice would you give them about teaching? Things that really would, maybe a few ideas about what really helps, uh, will help them be a better teacher. Uh, I would say, particularly if you're in Spanish, be at the top of your language game. Because in an average classroom, uh, even in introductory level Spanish classes, you're going to have students who speak Spanish as well, if not better than the teacher. Now, that's not necessarily uh, uh, an insult, but it is. it does indicate that um, you, have, uh, you have as much to learn from the students as they have 
from, from, from the teacher. Now, the Spanish that students bring in may be a different variety of Spanish than what teachers are accustomed to teaching. But, you know, as the, as the two sorts of language kind of communicate with each other and work on each other, uh, it, adds, it definitely adds to the ambiance of the classroom. So I would say, number one, be on top of your game. You know, there's so much you can do now. Travel is very accessible in a way that it wasn't uh, even 10, 15 years ago. The Internet is amazing. There are all kinds of uh, programs a person can tune into and interactive programs that people can tune into on, online. So I would say, once again, stay on top of things. Number two, I would say learn to be patient. If you have to, I mean, you know, after school, go practice a sport or, or, or meditate, but keep your mind in good shape and keep your body in good shape. And of course, the mind and the body are going to work together and be in as good a shape as you possibly can. Patience is of the essence. You can be an excellent teacher um, with, with, with excellent language skills, but you really have to keep your mind and your body in near tip-top condition as best as you can because you'll just feel better about yourself and you'll keep yourself young along with those kids. <laughs> okay, well said. And uh, to, back, to continue a little bit with the Tony's suggestion about the physical aspect of teaching, it is very, very grueling teaching. Uh, mm -hmm. When you're in the classroom five, six classes a day, uh, five or six hours of, of heavy teaching, uh, that you have to be in great physical shape and you can't, uh, and you're dealing with maybe classrooms, uh, classes of 25 to 35 kids, uh, that takes a huge amount of energy and effort. And as Tony said, that well said about the physical aspect, uh, love it that what you just said about that. And also I loved your first point about the Spanish and the get, be, be on top of your game and know as much as you can. And as you said so well, there many of the students are going to be not many necessarily depends on where you're at, uh, but uh, you may be in a, a huge city of like Chicago where you might be uh, have kids coming to school from a Latino neighborhood, and uh, so there are all kinds of kids you're going to get in class. You might get somebody from Mexico, uh, from Colombia, Guatemala, Salvador. And those kids are going to be sitting in your class, maybe, and uh, uh, they may not, uh, they may speak very well, but they can't write very well, or they don't know much grammar. So uh, what Tony said makes total sense, and again, about getting out and traveling and doing things like that. This is wonderful, well said, Tony, beautifully. Um, then the, um, uh, this idea of... Uh, Success. What? What for you? What is success when you teach? I mean, what really gets you excited to say, "I really had a great day," uh, or a great year, or when you look back and you run into ex students, what's what's would success be? Well, I think when I run into ex students in the mall or wherever, and you see them at the most unlikely places sometimes, you know, ball games or at the mall or at the movies. And the first thing that they say to you is in Spanish. They speak to you immediately in the language that, should, that we teachers work so hard to try to teach them. And so often we don't see, uh, I guess, the fruits of our labor initially. But every once in a while we get a little glimpse of the good work that we do as teachers, particularly teachers of Spanish, 
when you see somebody down the road, two, three, five, ten years, you say, oh, hola, señor Alonso, hola, señor Lagarota, yo recuerdo tu clase, and they go on to tell you what they've done with their life and what they've done with the language and how they enjoyed your class. And how, you know, uh, a world language class is one of the things that really stays with them deep down. It's not a superficial uh, content area. It's definitely something that, that, that sinks, I think, very deep roots and they can take with them wherever. Um, as far as I often um, speak, I suppose, to my students in metaphor. And I like to think of myself as maybe, I suppose... Uh, a gardener or a farmer, and very often I think to myself, you know, you know, I'm sort of sowing the seeds of Spanish. Estoy sembrando la semilla del español. You know, and eventually, with enough, uh, we call it nowadays, comprehensible input, we'll see the students uh, early on begin to sprout, you know, and begin to take over and, and uh, communicate with their own language. But, you know, uh, it's not possible for anybody to listen to, to learn anything unless they listen. So there's also there's a latent phase where I do a lot of the speaking, and then slowly but gradually you can see that they start to be, be able to produce language on their own. They're they're growing. It's like you know flowers. <laughs> I know that sounds a little corny. No, well said. Absolutely <laughs> correct. Yes, well said. Beautifully. Um, what about this um, the uh, language classroom today? The world language classroom. Um, what is good about it and what needs to be improved? Because you've, you've seen a lot of different uh, methods and strategies and use different textbooks, etc. Uh, what is really good about what's going on in the classroom today around the country and what could be improved? Well, I think one of the things you and I are communicating right now on Skype, this is my first experience you know, on Skype, I had never heard of Skype. I mean, I've heard of Skype, but I've never actually witnessed it. But I think uh, very often these days, a student can connect with anybody on the planet, practically, that uh, has free access to the Internet. And they can actually go, you know, live, real-time speaking and even seeing each other and communicating in a second language. Uh, I also think that it's really, really important to have the students exercise all of the skills, the CCCC skills. They need to communicate. They need to look at the culture. They need, uh, they need to read and speak and write and listen and take a peek into the culture daily. And I really think if you hit all five of those, the listening, the speaking, the reading, and the writing, and the culture, I do think if they're putting it into practice, uh, I, I think that it can, it can all add up to, eventually, a very rich life in the second language. Uh, but I like, you like to keep it practical. You know, there was a time when uh, we learned a foreign language like we were studying Latin. But nothing wrong with Latin. I studied Latin myself. But, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, we kind of broke from the, uh, the grammar translation paradigm. We actually got the students uh, listening to authentic language and then actually producing our own language. Uh, foreign language, uh, the psychology and methodology of foreign language instruction has really, really been revolutionized in the last 30 or 40 years. And I know that uh, your, some, a lot of your work, and you've published a lot, both theoretical and practical materials, uh, Mr. Alsop, a lot of your materials were early. You broke a lot of ground in getting students in the classroom to actually you know, engage and use the language for purposes of communication. I think you have some 300, 350 publications that are served from coast to coast, you know, 
many of which I own myself. <laughs> well, you're very kind. Thank you. Uh, well said about that. And uh, what about this? Um, uh, what makes a really great world language teacher? What, what, what would you, how would you classify a great world language teacher? Uh, and again, you've seen many people teach and you've been to workshops and you have two graduate degrees. What was it that those teachers that you had that were really outstanding teachers, what was it the, the three or four ingredients that they had, uh, qualities they had to, to make them outstanding? Well, in a person's lifetime, uh, I think we only meet two or three outstanding teachers. Uh, I do not consider myself, and I don't mean to be falsely humble, but I don't consider myself to be an outstanding teacher. I do consider my wife, Luisa Legrado, to be an outstanding teacher. I also consider Mr. Alsop, whom I'm speaking to right now, to be an outstanding teacher. Cheryl Rich was an outstanding teacher. They just bring a certain passion. They bring a certain energy. And I mean, I, and I think all of us that really enjoy our work bring a certain passion and a certain energy and a certain love and a certain enthusiasm to the classroom. But there are individuals like Tom Alsop, like Luisa Legrado, like Cheryl Rich, uh, I think Edris Tafiri, in the, the late Edris Tafiri, I'm sorry to hear that she's passed. But those were individuals who really, not only were they excellent teachers, but they just brought their entire being to the classroom and to the community at large. I mean, they just weren't classroom teachers. They broke the walls. You know, as you know, I mean, you get out and, uh, you know, work with the community. And so I think, once again, my wife, Tom Alsop, Cheryl Rich, Edris Tafiri, those were examples of people that were uncommonly wonderful language teachers. And I learned from them. Well, thank you for that. And I would like to also bring up Louisa for a minute uh, for the listeners. And Tony uh, is being very humble, uh, speaking about Louisa, his wife. And Louisa was uh, voted uh, three or four years ago the Indiana Teacher of the Year for all disciplines. And uh, that tells you how what kind of wonderful teacher Louisa Legrado is, astounding teacher, astounding. And, uh, and Tony's very astounding for the listeners and very humble, as you can tell. Uh, I always tell Tony that he knows more about Spanish and teaching uh, than any Spanish teacher in the state uh, of Indiana, <laughs> in Indiana. And it's very true. Uh, so... Uh, and he's a wonderful, outstanding teacher in, in that category of the, what he just said and beyond. Uh, and we're very fortunate that he's teaching Spanish and with his share his knowledge with the students. Um, so the teacher comes out today, and the, how how can they be better? Is it you know the methods, classes, and things? I'm I'm really not a great, uh, and I will be honest about this, and maybe you share the same ideas, but. Sometimes I think the methods classes really need to be improved around the country. And I think there's a lot of classes where, for whatever reason, the realities of teaching don't get uh, taught to the, to the future teachers. And they have to learn the hard way sometimes uh, in their student teaching and beyond. And then I, I think sometimes it's part of the reason not all the reason, of course, but part of the reason that uh, we have such a high turnover rate sometimes in the teaching profession. Um, so how, do, do you feel that way about some things, or do you think it could be improved? 
Well, uh, we're in really difficult times right now in the education profession. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're leaving uh, the profession to the professional for uh, spending too much time talking to politicians who definitely have a, a different agenda than educators do. Um, I do think, and I think Indiana is trying to address this uh, currently, I think that uh, young teachers, student teachers need to spend more time in the classroom before they actually sign a contract. You know, back in the 80s, uh, when I was doing my student teaching, I a student taught for eight weeks, and it was in the winter semester, and I missed I don't know how many days because of snow. Uh, I was no more ready to pursue uh, the art of teaching after that brief eight weeks with many breaks in between than I would have been just coming straight out of the uh, the academy. So now, what, what school was that? I student taught with a very fine mentor teacher. His name is Terry Rice. I think he sent oh, his South South Oh, yes. yes. Wonderful teacher, yes. Oh, yes. Now, he had a gift for teaching, too. He definitely had away with those students, that he was able to get them to cooperate and to speak Spanish as much as possible. And he was a good mentor teacher. Unfortunately, I could have used more mentor teachers. After the first mentor teacher, you recall who that was? <laughs> My first mentor was Tomas, Tomas, who I'm speaking to right now. Tomas, I went to, I went, it was, you know, I didn't know Tomas. This was the fall of 1981, and I was doing uh, observations, field observations. We did a lot of observations. We didn't do much actual student teaching in the day, back in those days. But somebody pulled me aside and said, you need to go see this man. And you were at South Wayne Junior High, and you were teaching 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. Somebody said, you need to go see this man. His name is Tom Alsop. I went into his classroom, and he had some, you know, some, let's say, not, not academically gifted kids in there. He had a lot of good ones, too. But there were some students who he was able to bring out the best in all of them. And it was a very lively, and it was a very energetic room. And I had to ask myself as I left, how much Spanish were those 7th and 8th graders, How much and Spanish won, how much Spanish were they actually speaking in that room? And it was 90, 95%. I mean, it was unbelievable. You know, so Tomas has definitely has a special gift. So what I'm saying, I guess, we're not always going to be born natural teachers. We're not all going to be natural born scientists or comedians. But if we can have as much exposure as possible out in the field before we get our own classroom, not just eight weeks, you need, I mean, to be very honest, you need at least a year, I believe, at least a year, maybe a, a paid internship. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. or something yeah. along those lines. Well, thank you for the kind words, and uh, and I really remember those days very well too. And it was a pleasure to share knowledge uh, with you, but also the, I've certainly learned a lot from you being there too. And uh, you were very inspirational too, and uh, still are very much so to everybody. So uh, thank you for the nice uh, compliment. The um, um, this. Uh, profession today, as you mentioned about politics and some of the political situations and different states, et cetera, et cetera. Um, are we getting too micromanage, too much micromanaging going on here? And even, uh, and, and I'm not singling out any schools and, and I'm just going to make a broad uh, assumption kind of 
uh, uh, teachers I talk to at the conferences and things. And uh, it seems to me like around the country, we, we're in this micromanaging stage. And especially with the politicians, sometimes with the administrations. And we, we take away creativity, maybe too much, and risk-taking from teachers today. Uh, as you said, back in the 80s, we could, we could go back to the 80s, even the late 70s, uh, in the language profession, there was an incredible amount of experimentation going on. There was risk-taking going on. There was use of the target language, like 90% of the time, 95. And there was this incredible desire, I always thought from the teachers and yourself included, that people wanted to learn how to risk-take. They wanted to do creative things and fun things. And I don't know today if we, maybe through the micromanaging, that uh, a little bit that we take this creativity away and perhaps uh, the teachers can't be create as creative as they need to be in the classroom and uh, not, not ha doesn't happen everywhere but it does happen some places and uh, are you in agreement with that from what you've oh, seen? I would definitely agree with that. Uh, again, if I can refer to statistics, I believe the latest statistic that I saw was three out of five teachers Young teachers leave the profession within five years. Um, we're not encouraging creativity. Yes. What we're doing, we're not letting teachers be themselves. We're not letting teachers, as you put very correctly, we're not allowing teachers to take risks and to do more interesting and more, I guess, communicative types of activities in the classroom. What it come down to, unfortunately, is an end of course assessment. And the end of course assessment tends to be a standardized exam, fill in the bubbles, read the passage, fill in the blanks, fill in the missing word. And, you know, and if teachers' names are attached to these scores, well, it's by their very nature, they're going to teach towards the test. And they're going to teach less towards creativity and more towards, I shall say, conformity, you see. Mm -hmm. So um, that's where I think that we're getting in trouble these days is where we're really zapping our teachers of the reasons they wanted to be teachers in the first place. Not to be wealthy, not to be poor, but uh, teachers are getting this, that, that spark, that drive of creativity taken away from them. And unfortunately, uh, maybe they're becoming, you know, uh, mouthpieces for the government. You know what I mean? They're becoming automatons. You know, yes. this in, turn this on, fill this in. You know, ro ro robots, robots, somewhat yeah. maybe. Yeah. And and we we talked a while ago about technology, and it's kind of one of my pet peeves about technology. And I love technology, and I just as you said so well about Skype, the internet, and the Google situations, and all you can you find out about cultures and language. But I, I do think we, we have to be careful that we don't get into this robotic situation, even in technology, you know, where we click to oblivion, you know, and, and there's no real interaction. There's no, like you said, one-to-one, -one, you know, where you're talking to people and humanizing things. And, uh, uh, but but it, it is today, I think, uh, uh, another, as you mentioned, I think that there are districts like technology, you know, that overwhelm the teachers with technology and they give up. They go, whoa, I can't do all this. This is not what I want to do. I want to, I want to interact with the kids. I want them to interact with each other. And uh, so I think sometimes uh, the schools 
the, the, the district sometimes maybe need to sit back and look at that and go, you know, maybe we ought to just do 50-50, 75% live, interactive, 25% technology. And I think that's what's going to evolve, do you? I think that people are going to finally say, this is not going to work. We can't just sit here all day and click on the computer, you know. You know we want to have live stuff too, you know. And uh, so there will probably be some technology standard around the country, which should be there now and isn't. I think it would make it everybody's job a hundred times easier if we had two, you know, two or three standard forms that we could use. This is this works really well. We suggest this, this, this. If you want to do 50% technology, this one, maybe 75% or 25% technology and 35 or something. But but to offer to the teachers coming into the profession these options of technology so they don't get overwhelmed. You know, it's so easy to get overwhelmed. And, and sometimes in, in schools, the, the, the district, they'll say, oh, we have to do this now. We're going to do this the new thing this year. Uh, you know, that in service learning, it's going to be this, this, this. And then the new teachers get, they're, they're scared. They're afraid I can't do this, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, it, it has to be, like you said, I think creative it has to be creative and teacher generated, right? This, this idea of creativity where they generate it and they're able to create things. And we're not just sitting there necessarily, uh, being controlled like robots, right? Or even by our own technology, which is easy to do. You know, it's easy to get wrapped up in this technology thing where uh, before we know it, you know, we're spending major blocks of time and not talking to human beings, you know. And so, but, but, but it's something to think about, I guess. Uh, so what's the biggest challenge for a world language teacher today? What do you think the toughest challenge is? Is it discipline? Uh, you know, uh, classroom management, uh, the fancy terms today, classroom management, uh, that we used to call it in the, in the old days, discipline. And uh, yes. <laughs> now people are coming back to that. There's some schools coming back to that. But uh, is that the biggest challenge or is the biggest challenge technology uh, that the, the teachers get overwhelmed by all the things that are thrown on top of them? Or is it... Um, uh, uh, Impossible class sizes are too big. Uh, what it, what is it that's the, 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 the toughest thing the teachers face? You think? Well, um, the first thing I would have to say is that if you don't like the kids, then you're in the wrong profession. I mean, and you probably ought to look yourself in the face, or anybody should look themselves in the face. Excellent say, point. Excellent. You know what I mean? Yes. If you don't like, yes. don't like, <laughs> if you don't like the animal, then don't make yes. it. Don't, yes. don't bring them home, or don't don't go to their house. Right, or whatever, right. Know? But you um, you have to love the kids, right? That, yes, that's number you really one. do. You have to you know you have to love the kids, and you have to love your teaching field. Uh, I would guess probably in my own situation, and this I'm only speaking for myself, but I would have to say the technology probably. You know, I'm 56, and back when I was in high school, or back when I was an undergraduate, I don't recall ever seeing a computer, and now they're all over the place. You know. Uh, and so I do think, you know, uh, technology has been very helpful to me. It's definitely enabled me to communicate with you via long distance. That's a good thing. But we have to remember that technology is to serve us. We're not to serve it. And if we become a slave to technology and we become so overwhelmed with 
this new technology and that new technology and this new technology, and you must use this to be on top of your game or else you're going to get behind and you're going to get more and more behind if you don't do this. You know, um, and we're fortunate here in, in, my, in Lawrence. I mean, we have all the technology at, at our disposal, uh, but nobody says you have to do this, you have to do that. But I can imagine... Which is very what, nice, yes, and you're very fortunate, that. yeah, because I, I think there are places where it's more, you know, it comes down on the teacher to you have to do this, you have to do that. Right. And, uh, and again, you, we get back to the autonomy, the creativity, all those wonderful things that you're fortunate at Lawrence that you're able to do, you know, that's wonderful. Absolutely. That, that's very good. Um, so what's your favorite place to visit in the world? What are your top three cities that you like the best? I would have to say, and this may surprise you, but my number one city in the world to visit would have to be Bloomington, Indiana. Mm -hmm. It's so close, yet it's so far away. Uh, the six years that I was in Bloomington, four years, four and a half as an undergraduate, two years as a young husband while I was putting my wife, so to speak, through a graduate school. I was working and she was uh, doing her master's degree at the time. Uh, and that's where we met back in 1979, where we lived for two years uh, after uh, we got married. It's probably, it's one of the most beautiful cities in Indiana. And for such a small city and so close to Indianapolis, it's within 50 minutes of my house in Southport, uh, it's, it's a world away. It's probably, uh, you know, you can go there and, and see sports, you can see theater, you can see opera. You, your wife, uh, Jill, and Luis and I have gone to see operas and plays at the Mac. They used to call it the Mac. I'm not sure what they, I still call it the Mac. <laughs> I think they probably have a different uh, term for it now. But there's just so much, and there's so much culture. You can meet people from every country, just about in the world. Speaking and the, the campus, campus is magnificent, beautiful. For the listeners who've never seen the campus in Indiana University, one of the most beautiful ones in the world. Uh, woods everywhere, beautiful trees and grass, and just a magnificent, magnificent campus. Uh, what would be your second favorite? I would have to think that my second favorite city would be a city in Mexico by the name of San Luis Potosi. San Luis Potosi, probably the first time that I can honestly say that I was uh, away from home was in San Luis Potosi. I had the good fortune when I was 16 years old at the end of my junior year to uh, be on a summer seven-week immersion study uh, program. And I know that um, Mr. Alsop also has connections. He was the director for a couple of years and a teacher for a couple of years, both uh, high school students and graduate students and teachers. And that city actually, it was in that city that I realized formally and officially that I wanted to be a teacher and I wanted to be as good a teacher as I possibly could be and that I could, and that Spanish was it, you know. Uh, the program was set up such that we were immersed, you know, 24-7 in the target language. People think, you can't do that. Yeah, you can, you know. And and I, I have to tell the listeners, uh, when Tony and Luisa were down there, and as was Jill, my wife, uh, we were all there on this teacher program uh, that, that we started up for teachers in San Luis Potosí. Uh, it was one of the most astounding groups of teachers I've ever seen, that group that particular year. 
and the enthusiasm of the group. It was just astounding. And it was it's such a great city, as Tony said. Uh, beautiful, majestic city in the mountains, and it's just lovely. Kind of hid away from everything in Mexico. It's kind of hidden. It's not near... I, I don't think Tony is it, it just more hid, hidden in the mountains a little bit. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, wonderful people. Yeah, wonderful people, great people, and great culture. Probably the truest Spanish in Mexico, yeah. and uh, just magnificent. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm kidingly, I've kidded Tony about. We hope that he goes to Cuba this summer <laughs> because uh, I think he'd even have a more fun there even than he's ever imagined but uh uh but uh he he was magnificent there was when he was on the teacher workshop he was you, you inspired all of us that was a great time and uh, uh what's your third favorite city mm, this is a tough one uh, i would think probably my third favorite city it's not really a city it's a little town it uh, is known, it's on Cape Cod, it's called Osterville, Osterville, Massachusetts, where uh, my wife's grandparents had a, a second home. And when we were first married, and for several summers subsequent to our marriage in 88, we would go and visit, and it was particularly beautiful in the fall. The foliage would turn, it's very close to, it's, it's right on the Cape, it's right on the ocean, and it's within, uh, you know, I should say swimming distance of Hyannis and little nice little towns like that. But it's a very beautiful, it's a very quaint uh, fisherman's town, you know. And uh, it's particularly in the end, the number of times that I've been there, I've definitely enjoyed Osterville, Massachusetts. And it's only about an hour, an hour and a half from Boston, which is another lovely city. But Osterville is, is beautiful. Well, Antonio Gomez, I always call him Antonio Gomez and and we kiddingly call him Antonio Gomez because Tony loves Mexico and, and all things Mexicano. He also loves Madrid. And I and I, we're running out of time, right? Have you talked about Madrid? But I'm sure he'd talk for a while about oh, Madrid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, we would like to thank you so much for being on the program. And, and it's going to be a thank great you. program for the teachers to listen to. And uh, hear your wonderful thoughts about teaching, and from someone who's has done the teaching, has been there and done that, and continues to do it beautifully. And uh, we're very proud that we are friends of yours and uh, and Luisa's, and it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, I will let you know when the show posts online, and uh, and so you can listen, and you you hopefully enjoy it very much. And um, again, thank you so much, and we'll have you on again sometime, and we'll talk that. about all kinds of crazy, funny things, and uh, and have you on again. And obviously, we want to have Luis on the show, and I have to see if I can convince her to to get on the show. So, um, but uh, have a wonderful day, Antonio, and uh, the rest of the day. I know it's uh, late afternoon, and it's uh, five p.m., and you stay late after school to do this. And again, thank you for that as well. And uh, you have been an inspiration to all of us, and uh, we're very proud that uh, uh, we've had the chance and, and, and to know you and be inspired by all your wonderful work teaching and uh, a million things related to teaching. So uh, 
uh, just uh, you've been an inspiration to everybody. So uh, have a wonderful night. Say hi to uh, Luisa and to the listeners out there. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we will uh, talk soon again. Um, a little surprise, a note ahead of time. Uh, in January, we're going to have John D'Amato is going to be on our show and our program. And uh, John is paying us a second visit. He was on the show a couple years back. And he's going to come back and talk in uh, January. And we have uh, three or four other major uh, people in the foreign language education that are going to be on the show in February. And we're going to include Louisa in our group as well and have Tony come back maybe in the spring and uh, let us know how things are going as uh, he approaches the, the summer vacation. <laughs> and he's going to be. <laughs> so he'll be. Yes. yes. So have a great day, Antonio, and listeners as well. We'll be in touch again on in Radio UCCS.edu. Uh, Kyle, thanks to you. Thanks to all the people at uh, Radio UCCS. Uh, and we're going to close the show with Canta Corazón, Alejandro Fernandez, a wonderful uh, Mexican singer. Okay, everybody have a, bu a good night. Buenas noches. Uh, estamos en contacto. Bien. Thank <laughs> you.